Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series this week, The Mysteries of Compassion. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Jesus and His Church. In today's passage here in Matthew 16 and then later in Matthew 18, I mean, these are the only places in the four Gospels where we find the word church. It's interesting. It's interesting because, say, the critics, Jesus came to announce the kingdom of God and instead he got the church. Ah, the church. You already know that there are a number of people who say they like Jesus, they just don't like the church. In an article that appeared in the Gospel Coalition website, Joe Carter wrote about why some professing Christians don't go to church. Carter says that the predominant reason why people say they don't go to church is because they say that they can practice their faith in other ways. And then a second reason, they have not found a church they liked. Now, other reasons include they don't like the sermons, they don't feel welcome. Others talk about logistic reasons, it's too far away, they have schedule problems and so forth. And All of that to say, for some people, they don't go to church because they assume that Jesus is very important, the church just isn't. Now, that's a polite way of saying several things. The more blunt and abrupt way of saying the same things comes from a survey that was done by the Barna Research Group. Five reasons why millennials aren't going to church, according to Barna. Reason number one, the church is irrelevant. The leaders are hypocritical, and many leaders have experienced a moral failure. That is, why would you trust people like that for your spiritual future? Reason number two, God is missing in the church. That is, having been there, they don't feel that their legitimate experience there in church helps them connect with God. Reason number three, legitimate doubt is prohibited. Either no one addresses their real questions or even listens to their real questions or on the other side of things, the church is so ambiguous about biblical truth, you can never get a straight answer. In either case, no one addresses the matters that they're genuinely struggling with. Reason number four, people say they're not learning about God there. Either they don't understand what's being taught or it's not clear or on the other hand, what's being taught doesn't help them to understand the Christian faith or what the Christian faith says uniquely to them. And finally, reason number five, they're not finding community. And by the way, I can identify with that. You know, my wife and I once attended a church, it was for a year and a half, and throughout that time, no one welcomed us. We tried to find a small group on several occasions we couldn't get in, We tried to sign up for membership classes and we couldn't get a convenient time. And after we left after a year and a half and we told people we were going, no one even cared enough to say, you guys all right? I mean, it was maddening. I I came to realize the friendship networks in that church were already set. Church was doing relatively well and it didn't matter if we came or not. And I'm trying to make a point and it's not to criticize the church. The point is... It's now endemic. People all over the place are disconnecting the idea of Jesus from the idea of church. And look, I haven't even said anything about people who are genuinely hurt by the local church. But again, I'm not a critic of the local church. And furthermore, I care deeply that the criticisms of the church should not discourage the church. 
There are ways to address these concerns. There are ways to get better at welcoming new people. And pulpits can learn to teach carefully, following the Bible verse by verse, helping people understand both who God is and how to respond to Him. We can offer classes in apologetics and and address the real struggles and doubts of people, as well as classes for non-Christians who have never found faith. We can make prayer a larger part of church. But that's not why I address this matter, not to point out the failings of the church. I mention all these matters to show that increasingly people don't put Jesus together with the church. Let's see what Jesus had to say about that. In Matthew 16, we find that Jesus has taken his disciples on a long walk. He's gone from the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and he's traveled north. They've walked for about 40 kilometers, and I'll say it's about a two-day walk. And he's taken them to the region of Caesarea Philippi. You know, one of the sources of the Jordan River comes from a cave near that city. And because of superstitions and because of pagan religions, that very cave came to be thought of as a spiritual place. And there in that place was an ancient shrine dedicated to the Greek god Pan. Uh, He was the god of wild places and the god of shepherds, as well as the god of rustic music. We get our Pan flute named from that tradition. But there's more to that region than the temple that was set up to Pan. Now, the Roman Emperor Augustus had given that very district to Herod the Great, and in turn, Herod had built a temple there in honor of the emperor. And later, after Herod the Great died, his son Herod Philip had inherited that territory, that is, the temple and the city, and he called it Caesarea in honor of Caesar Augustus. But because there was already one city named Caesarea in Israel, Herod Philip called this one Caesarea Philippi. So you have to ask yourself, I mean, why did Jesus walk 40 kilometers with his disciples to that region known for pagan temples and emperor worship? Now hold on to that thought because it's a very important question. Now start reading our passage. I'm reading Matthew 16, 13 to 14. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So they arrive in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and as they do, without explaining what they're doing there, Jesus begins to ask his disciples one question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, we know that Jesus has frequently called himself the Son of Man. And and that term, Son of Man, it's intended to be a mysterious term. I mean, what is he saying when he tells people he's the Son of Man? You know, on the one hand, that phrase might have been borrowed from the book of Ezekiel. And in the book of Ezekiel, God frequently addresses the prophet, and he calls him Son of Man. And there it simply means that he's a son of humanity. That is, he's a human being. But in the book of Daniel, that title means something very different. There, the Son of Man is a heavenly, he's even a divine figure who approaches the Ancient of Days. And so people in Jesus' day never knew what he meant when he called himself the Son of Man. I mean, was he like Ezekiel's Son of Man, or was he like Daniel's Son of Man? And they didn't know. And I think Jesus deliberately used a vague term rather than calling himself the Son of God. Because if he had called himself the Son of God, people would have stoned him. Given that the name Son of Man is not clearly understood by people, Jesus asks his disciples what the people are saying about him. 
Look, the disciples still don't know why they're there, but they answer. And in their answer, they're only giving the positive things that people are saying. Well, we know what the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been saying. It's some very nasty things. But the disciples know that Jesus is not asking about them. He's asking about the people that have been showing up at his meetings, the ones whom he's been healing, the ones who've been listening to him as he's been preaching. What are they saying about me? And the disciples have heard it before, and so they respond. Some of them out there say you're John the Baptist. Of course, as we've seen, that's what Herod Antipas believed, and it would seem that some people out there agreed with Herod Antipas. They felt that the spirit of John the Baptist had entered into Jesus. But others said he was Elijah. That's a very telling statement because because of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. That passage says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so most Jews believe that before the Messiah returned, God would send Elijah the prophet and he would pave the way. And so these people would have believed that Jesus was the forerunner of the Messiah. A third group believed that he was the prophet Jeremiah. Now, we weren't told why these people thought that, except that we do know that there was a Jewish teaching at that time that said that both Jeremiah and Isaiah would return before the coming of the end of the world. And then there were those people who thought, well, he's simply to be numbered among one of the many prophets of Israel. And I find this fascinating. What people thought of Jesus, well, it's really not that much different to the confusion that reigns today. There are those who think that Jesus was a great religious teacher. Others think he was a social reformer. And still others think that he was a great Pharisee, one who came to reform Judaism and get it back on track. And by the way, that idea, well, it's still held among some Jewish rabbis to this very day. And still others think that he's a teacher of religious ideas borrowed from all over the world, even as far away as India. See, that's it. From the time that Jesus came to this very day, the human race continues to have numerous theories about who he was. Muslims believe he was a prophet. University students have been told he's a radical. Turns out nothing has changed since then. And so in this place, Caesarea Philippi, a place where religious options were everywhere, the theories about who Jesus is, is as great as the number of religions that are a part of the human race. Back to the Bible Canada has been privileged to have sat under the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld for five years. We have seen the blessings of God upon this ministry, and one of those ways is the excellent teaching that Dr. Newfeld provides. God is at work in our nation, and that is something to celebrate. Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating this milestone in ministry by offering you, our valued friends in ministry, Dr. John's newest series, Faith and What We Hope For, and a special edition of our 2020 Highlight Reel series, which includes five of the most noteworthy messages from Dr. John on CD for you, free this month. It's a modest way of saying thanks for your support and encouragement. To request your gift today, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Well, Jesus wants to know from his disciples whether or not they've been listening to all the theories regarding his identity. He now comes to the reason why he's asking them. 
are they swayed by the various theories or are they convinced by what he's been saying? Matthew 16, 15 to 17, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but by my father who is in heaven. Now, this will not have been the first time the subject of the identity of Jesus has come up. So you might remember that back in Matthew 14, verse 33, Jesus has just walked on water and then has commanded that the wind cease. And the disciples together then said, truly, you are the son of God. So why is this incident at Caesarea Philippi different from that one? Well, for starters, this is the first time that any of the disciples have ever called him the Christ. Now, as you know, the Greek word Christos is simply a Greek translation from the Hebrew word Mashiach. Mashiach is translated by the English Messiah. Peter, who speaks here, not only calls Jesus the Son of God, he calls him the Messiah. He's saying that as opposed to those who argue that you're a forerunner to the Messiah, I know that's not the case. You are the Messiah. And that's a significant moment because, as we know, the messianic expectation was that the Messiah would restore David's fallen throne, that he would rule in Jerusalem, that he would overthrow Israel's enemies, which would have included the Roman Empire, and that then he would have ruled the entire world. Now, as we know, before that occurs, Jesus has to suffer. Uh, We're going to talk about that more tomorrow. But it should be said that the disciples are not wrong in their expectations. See, I mentioned this because a great many people teaching on this text will often say, look, the disciples wanted a political Messiah or a Messiah of power rather than a Messiah who ruled in humility over the hearts of men and women. I think that's a gross oversimplification. And I need to say it emphatically. The disciples were not wrong in their messianic expectation. Listen as the Apostle Paul comments on a passage from Isaiah 11. So here I'm reading Romans 15, verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. See, that is the messianic hope. David's son will come and rule the world. Listen to Psalm 2, 8 and 9. It's an Old Testament messianic psalm. It says, ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so here they are in the site of a a temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus, who is worshipped as a god. And Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the one who's destined to crush the nations. And more so, you're also the son of God, that is, the son of the living God, as opposed to those lifeless pagan gods that are represented by the false god Pan, whose temple we're looking at. You are the fulfillment of all our hopes, and you stand supreme over all men. You're supreme over all their religions, for you are the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says to him, the reason you know that is not because you're smarter than all those other people. No, no, that's not it. In fact, it's not even because you've been the closest to me and you've personally witnessed all my miracles and teaching. It's not that either. See, you know this because it was given to you through a divine revelation. And furthermore, you didn't come to know this because you're smarter than others. You didn't know my identity for any other reason than this. The Father has chosen to show this truth to you, and that's why you know. 
It came as a revelation from God. Now, I'm going to say more about that, especially also about how it is that we come to know who Jesus is today. I know it's true. It's in the Bible. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. The Bible teaches that. But how is it that we've come to believe that? What accounts for the fact that some of us believe this revelation and some of us don't? Is it because some of us are more spiritually attuned? Is it because we have a better insight than others do? Is it, do you think, because we're morally superior, more willing than others to give up our sins and call Jesus Lord? I mean, do you think we came to call Jesus Lord and God and Messiah for a reason that lies within ourselves? I mean, what do you think? I want to take you back to Matthew eleven twenty-five to 27. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and, listen now, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, of course, there are many New Testament passages that speak in exactly that way. Ephesians 1.4 says, We have been chosen from before the foundations of the world. John 15, verse 16 has Jesus saying, You did not choose me, I chose you. John 17, verse 6, it's a part of Christ's high priestly prayer. He prays, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you have given them to me. Or 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. See, you don't come to the place in which you say out of firm conviction and understanding, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You don't come to that place outside of this that it is the Father's will to reveal it to you. It's called grace. It's not called a superior personal decision. No, it's not that. It's grace. And so I can only imagine at this moment, the disciples are staring at one another. Yeah, Peter has spoken for all of them. And now Jesus says, you've been chosen by my Father to understand my identity. But of course, after that bombshell, he has something else to say. Verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now look, I know that's a breathtaking statement. It's also one of the most controversial statements in history. That's because so many people understand this statement differently, and almost all of them will go to the Greek to try to prove their point. So for instance, if you're a Roman Catholic, well, you might argue that Peter is the rock on which the church is built. But even if you argue that, you need to argue that there will be a series of successors to Peter, all who are given the title Foundation and Rock of the Church. But of course, the Bible never teaches that Jesus meant to establish Peter as a pope. I mean, nothing in the teaching of Jesus, nor in the rest of the Bible, even comes close to hinting at that. And so to imagine that Jesus is saying that, and then he never says it again, I don't think so. I know that Peter was a leader of the apostles. I know he became a key leader in the early church, but Jesus never said that the entire church was built on him. That's not in the Bible. In fact, if Jesus had wanted to say that Peter was the foundation for the church, well, he could have said just that. 
he would have said, you are Peter, and on you and on your successors, I will build my church. But he doesn't say that. In fact, as I sometimes like to do, you know, I like to read the sermons of a man named John Chrysostom. He's one of the greatest preachers the church ever had. He's a pastor who lived in the fourth and the fifth centuries. And in his sermon on this text, that is, as he was preaching on Matthew 16, 13 to 18, Chrysostom preached, upon this rock I will build my church, that is, on the faith of this confession, said Chrysostom. You see, at that time, when the Roman church wasn't supreme yet, the great preachers and the great theologians of the faith, like Chrysostom, perhaps the greatest preacher for a thousand years, argued that Jesus never meant to say that Peter was the rock of the church, rather that Peter's confession, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the son of the living God, that confession is the foundation of the church. What then is the church? The church is the community of those who have been chosen by God to know the true identity of Jesus the Messiah. That's why the church isn't optional, and that, folks, is why I can't be a critic of the church. You remember that I said that at one point in time, my wife and I had tried unsuccessfully to get to know people in a church. I guess that's criticism, but let me say something else. That church confessed Jesus as Messiah and Son of God. That church was called into being by the will of God. It was God's church. With all their warts and wrinkles, they were prized by God. It's always Jesus and his church. The two are inseparable. John, thanks for your message today. You know, I know you love the church, but for you personally, what is it about the church that that you love so much? You know, Ben, I was in church ministry and pastoral ministry for so many years, but it's this interesting transition in my life to, to actually go to church, sit down with my wife, I hear the Word of God preached when it's preached expositionally. I've got a good pastor. I am so thankful for the way in which he speaks by the Word into those things that have, you know, that need to be spoken to in my life. I find that I not only need the Word, but I also need the people that I relate to and the prayers and everything else that goes on. I need the church, Ben. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Mysteries of Compassion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Joshua from In Doubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Every week, InDoubt invites young adults into a conversation about the very real and challenging questions of faith, life, and culture. Our goal is to confront life's issues with the help of guest pastors and Christian leaders and to dive into the Bible to discover its truth and relevance for living life as a follower of Jesus. Join myself, Daniel, or Isaac every week along with special guests from around the globe to discuss things that matter most to you. Our hope is to reach not only the young adult who stands firm in their faith, but also the one who has questions or doubts. In Doubt can be heard through our podcast, mobile app, or on radio, and you can check out all of our programs and resources at indoubt.ca. In Doubt is a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada and possible only through the generous gifts of those who share our heart to engage a new generation with the Bible. For more information, or if you would like to support In Doubt with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca.